It's a typical political media argument is about whether the Biden polls, the New York Times Siena poll that you mentioned, is entirely disconnected from the voting that took place on Tuesday, particularly in Kentucky, particularly in Virginia and in Ohio. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, November 13th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I talk about the media's coverage lately of Joe Biden's re-election chances and how Biden world these days is even crankier with the press than they usually are. And we discuss the end of Jezebel, another nail in the coffin for the bygone era of 2000s digital media. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, it's Media Monday. I'm joined by John Kelly to talk about all things media, business of media, journalism, Jezebel today, John Kelly's favorite website that is no more. Uh, John, welcome to the show. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. John, I wanna, I do want to ask you about Jezebel closing and sort of you know another chapter in the end of ad-supported media and you know whether you know there's a market for a place like Jezebel uh, anymore. But John, there's an interesting media story uh, going on right now about Joe Biden and the almighty narrative uh, in Washington around his re-election chances around the elections last Tuesday, which showed that Democrats are still showing up to vote in off-year elections. You know, as college-educated men and women have drifted to the Democratic Party in the Trump years, it turns out that in an inverse of a decade ago, the most reliable off-year voters are actually Democrats. The people paying the most attention are showing up to off off your elections, like the governor's race in Kentucky. You know, there was a abortion measure on the ballot in Ohio. Obviously, I wrote about the elections in my home state of Virginia there, uh, where Glenn Youngkin got a brushback pitch from voters and Democrats took control of the whole General Assembly. What's going on in D.C., though, is interesting because the Biden campaign and the Biden White House are really cranky with the press. 
because before the election on Tuesday, the New York Times in Siena dropped some very high quality state polling showing Biden in deep, deep trouble in a head to head against Trump in all the biggest battlegrounds, Arizona, et cetera. And then, you know, the election results come in on Tuesday night and the, you know, after all this criticism from pundits, from, you know, columnists, from cable news that Biden's in real trouble, all this like hair on fire activity in the press, they're like, see, Democrats are still showing up. You guys are crazy. Like, it's going to be fine. Polls are not predictive a year out. We got to just stay the course. And there's a lot of non-Biden Democrats in Washington around the country who are like, sure, but people are still not psyched about Biden and people are worried. What's been your view of this? I mean, I'm obviously immersed in this world, but like, have you noticed that too? Like the the Biden people, like they've always liked to kind of shame the media and attack Twitter punditry and conversation, but um, it feels like it, it went to a new level last week. Well, this is your field of expertise and you know a lot of the players firsthand in a way that, that I don't, but I will say that if you have lunch with anyone in the political class in Washington, this is like the first thing that comes up, you know, uh, orders are taken. And so what do you think? Because you're right that the the (laughs) non-Biden Democratic operative class is Biden skeptical, right, to to, to put it um, to put it mildly. And there's a kind of Biden bunker class. and, And I don't I don't use that euphemistically. I mean, I think it's people who've been very, very close to the president for a very long time. The Ron Klain, Anita Dunn, Kate Benningfield, sort of um, various concentric circles from there that have felt like they've been second-guessed continuously for years and and they've been successful throughout. And there's actually, because the Biden class is is slightly always online, or it's more online than you would think, a lot of this debate can make it into a a more public sphere than you would expect. But I guess the the main point that uh, I wanted to sort of arrive at here is that I think the argument that's taking place in Washington now, and it's a typical political media argument, is about whether... The Biden polls, the New York Times Siena poll that you mentioned, and the the David Axelrod tweet surely there about suggesting that, that Biden might delicately reconsider uh, running for re-election, is entirely disconnected, or the the extent to which it's disconnected from the voting that took place on Tuesday, particularly in Kentucky, particularly in Virginia and in Ohio. And there is a feeling, and and Tara captured some of this in in a piece last week, there is a feeling that I've been a party to that the Biden world is trying to claim credit for these elections um, and that the anti-Biden world believes that Biden isn't synonymous with, uh, with abortion rights and that he didn't actively campaign for for um, Andy Bashir, and that there's daylight between the two. These are two sort of separate phenomena, that, that Biden is becoming increasingly less popular, particularly, as you point out many times, among younger voters and, and also among, uh, crucially, black and Hispanic voters, mm-hmm. and also that Democratic voters are turning out in numbers to support abortion rights, which you can probably expect in, in 2024. So it's, it's almost ideological, I guess, is how I would put it, that these two competing factions inside the Democratic Party can't agree with what to agree on. And lastly, the challenge as I see it, and I'm not a political person, you know this, so I'm, I'm just sort of calling this like I see it from the people that I talk to in that world. But the challenge as I see it is that the, the operative class that's outside of Biden world 
seems to be trying to um, put banana peels out there for the Biden people. And they only have a few months to do it before it really becomes too late because nobody wants a brokered convention. Like that's uh, that is a nightmare and is close to a a cakewalk for a sort of, you know, non um, handcuffed Trump as as you can get. Yeah, I disagree with you a little bit. Like I don't being close to this stuff. I don't think anyone in Biden world is taking credit for what happened on, on Tuesday. And like, I think there's some over oversimplifications happening in the conversation. I think the thing that they're cranky about is there's the fixation on polling. And, and look, the New York Times in Siena is a great poll. And there's been a total lack of great state level polling, both in the Republican primaries, but also nationally. And so when you do get a high quality state poll, it's worth paying attention to. And so the press seized on that and like David Axelrod was like, it's time for Biden to drop out of the race. And like, look, Axelrod's been playing pundit for years now and he's made the Biden campaign angry for years now. He isn't in the strategist game anymore. He's a CNN pundit. And so they lump him in with that sort of press pundit crowd and get cranky with him. I will say, John, it was interesting watching CNN's coverage last Tuesday. Kate Bedingfield was on set at CNN as part of their like, you know, big yep. election night coverage and former White House communications director. She looked like, and Axelrod was on the set with her, she looked like she wanted to crawl over the table and like rip Axelrod's like mustache off. Does he still have a mustache? He might not. But it was like, she was channeling what I was hearing in my many text message conversations with people from the White House, the DNC, the Biden campaign, whatever, who were just like, all of these pundits and reporters in DC like need to understand a little bit of history and context. Polls a year out don't mean much. I wrote about this months ago, by the way, like a year out from the election. You know, maybe not a year, a little over a year. Obama's approval ratings were really bad among Democrats, too. And he was like in the low 40s, high 30s, I think, according to Gallup, you know, and obviously still won because, and this gets to a larger point I want to make, the election was ultimately a choice between him and Mitt Romney, and Obama won the conversation. And the White House didn't just start saying this is going to be a choice between Biden and Trump like last week. They've been saying this forever. They've known going back to 2021 that Biden's approval ratings were sinking. Like if you look at the real clear politics average, Trump is plus one. If you go back polling to like August like of this year, the Biden Trump head to head in national polling is all within the margin of error. So like this whole like bedwetting panic didn't like just start last week with these New York Times Siena polls. Sure. It certainly like pushed it more into the conversation because the polls are so good and generally accurate. And Biden's weaknesses among young people and non-white voters are apparent. Another thing I've been writing about, everyone please read Puck. <laughs> but it's just like, they are upset with the polls, upset with the press. I don't think though, a lot of the state level Democrats are saying that Biden's trying to take credit for it. If anything, Biden's unpopular, so they had to keep him away from these states. And they made investments too, like through the DNC. Like. Some of these states, like the Virginia Democrats, went to the DNC, were like, we need your help, we need more money. And they, they sent more money down there. But you didn't see Biden like taking a victory lap around that. He was giving like a UAW speech. You're right. You're you're you're. Uh, uh, l- l- allow me to clarify for one second. I should say that the, I think that there's a a post Tuesday narrative put forward by people like uh, Kate Bankfield, who you just mentioned, that the results on Tuesday 
should assuage the bedwetters that that, that Biden is still okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, a, a little disagreement is is healthy in all marriages, including ours. I think one um, <laughs> w- one thing that does strike me, and this is a sort of Hambian point, if I may say so myself, is that Biden won in twenty twenty. Because, you know, essentially, you know, they, they dressed it up in more artful language, the, the bridge and the heart and soul, of the American people, whatever it was. But really, it came down to uh, essentially him for his finger out saying, you want that guy? You know, as you said, the, the referendum on Trump. Yeah. What is happening now, I think, with, with you know, I spy with my two untrained eyes. And again, and I point out, I'm a um, I'm not a political analyst, although frankly, neither are most of the people who call themselves that. But (laughs) the Democrats, in their inimitable way, have found a manner in which to turn the referendum on Biden. And yes, of course, he's the incumbent president, so that that is to be expected. But they did have, once again, the gift of, do you want that guy? Do you want this guy who who supported January 6th and and the Muslim ban and Charles Phil? I mean, ad infinitum, we could go on. We don't need to. And now the age issue has turned into being a basically a, an election about whether do you want to buy Joe Biden futures? And I don't know. Again, I don't want to get over my skis here. And I, and I don't want to be a bedwetter either. Like, I really, really don't. But I don't see the Democrats locking arms after South Carolina again this year the way they completely did in 2020. They completely did. You know, Biden ran a a leaky campaign. Once he won, once the momentum swung behind him, the party really got behind him and his personnel apparatus ratcheted up many, many levels. There was way more cash on hand. The rocket ship took off. I don't know if I see that all coming together. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Gavin Newsom and Pritzker are, are waiting in the wings, being ostensibly supportive, completely supportive, but are keeping their options open. Yeah. And like, I don't want to run rapid response for the Biden campaign either. Like he's got serious challenges. He's not the the not safe non-Trump vessel that he was in 2020, just as you mentioned. He's now an incumbent. And, you know, I'm not even willing to say like he's the best candidate for Democrats necessarily. Mm -hmm. The age issue is very real. People vote on vibes, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing the Biden campaign has been saying forever for like a year now is like, once we get down to it, people will make a choice and like Biden might be old, but that guy's fucking nuts. And, mm-hmm. you know, but again, so many variables. You got the double haters. You got Cornell West and Jill Stein and RFK yep. Jr. And maybe Joe Manchin. I mean, like, it's just we cannot predict anything. Um, John, I'll take a quick break uh, and come back and ask you about the latest casualty of G.O. Media, which would be Jezebel. to the powers of be everybody it's media monday john you and i both talked about ben smith's book traffic which came out earlier this year i really liked it it's sort of about not just buzzfeed where ben worked but about that moment in time in the you know mid 2000s where you had deadspin and gawker and you know later jezebel and these uh you know gawker media generally and pre-social media the very headline-driven, SEO-driven, some would say clickbait-driven, ad-supported kind of media. In the case of those places that trafficked a lot in snark, um, but also wrote some very interesting stories, uh, broke some news here and there. 
Jezebel, it was announced by Geo Media, is being put to bed this week, which to me feels like, oh, they were still kicking. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels like something from that era that I thought, it's just not something that's part of people's daily lives in the way that it was back in the day. Like people say that about Gawker and Deadspin too. Like one of my college friends was like, like I miss Gawker. And I was like, I haven't, you know, we yeah. all read Gawker back then. I haven't heard anyone say that in a long time <laughs> because a lot of that sort of like tone has migrated to other websites. It's it's It takes place on social media all the time. Like Twitter has replaced a lot of that kind of era's writing. And there's just so many other places where you can get it. So I don't know. What's your what's your perspective on Jezebel being killed off from a, from the business side? Well, I have um I think I stake out a minority position in, in this in a couple ways. That, but we for our generation, the Nick Denton properties, Gawker, Jezebel, Deadspin, th- these meant something, right? These, these were businesses that came into the world when we were in our early twenties, new in work. They they spoke with a voice that was just primarily internet, and they were a part of companies that had large at, at a time large valuations. You know, the the Gawker Media entity was like you know nine figure uh, valuation. Buzzfeed, you mentioned a minute ago, had a billion dollar plus valuation, which now seems just crazy because it's it's on the, the brink of being delisted. But I have to admit, on some level, I was always skeptical. Like I, I spent a lot of my career up until the last number of years in very traditional non-startup media. And these companies were absolutely attacker brands for places mm. that I had worked, like Condé Nast. And uh, I actually have a lot of experience with women's magazines. Uh, Rebecca worked at a number of them for years. My mother even did. And so I actually appreciate uh, both the, the strengths and weaknesses of them. If you think back at what Glamour, which is sort of the, um, the ne plus ultra of what Jezebel was trying to, mm-hmm. to thwart, Glamour was an advertiser's fantasy of a young woman, right? You know, there was an idea of a glamour girl. You know, maybe she's 15, lives in Bethesda, and has interests and likes certain pop stars. I mean, certainly the editors and people who created that business spoke in those terms. But but the real sort of element that made it an extraordinary business, and it was, I think, a $300 million a year business under Bill Wackerman and and a young Pam Drucker man when she was starting her career, was that it played in many different categories. So... Glamour was never the top revenue earner in fashion or beauty or CPG or fast fashion or in you know auto or whatever, but it was like fourth or fifth, you know. So it got money from all these categories. They could call on all these categories, and that's what made it an extraordinary business. Of course, after two thousand eight, when advertisers began to migrate to the web and started to support fewer print-first things, the business just unraveled because it it wasn't endemic enough to any of those categories. But the point being, when the Nick Denton properties were launching and then eventually the the properties that that sort of, that its success kind of begat, I couldn't help but think to myself, what's the business here? Mm -hmm. Vanessa Gregoriadis, uh, a great writer, I think once referred to Gawker as channeling the rage of the creative underclass. And man, I couldn't put it any better myself. Like, these were angry people from deep Brooklyn who were pissed at how capitalism had turned out for them. Sorry, don't at me. But 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 that there was a seething rage that coursed through it. And I think that Jezebel had a more righteous tone. And in many ways, the, the topics that they covered were completely undercovered in traditional media where they should have been. But the tone and the angst made um, really in you know prevented those brands I think from becoming larger businesses. And so what you have now, 16 years later I believe, is Jezebel, which was attempting to you know be an insurgent and and undo all these hegemonic women's brands. Well, 
guess what? Funnily enough, they still exist in, you know, whatever uh, state of disrepair in some cases, and it doesn't. And it shows you that, you know, brand is important, but business model is the monolithic and enduring thing. And I think that those Denton uh, businesses never quite figured it out. And then when, when Geo Media was at Go or Geo, I never quite figure that one out. They operate sort of a chop shop model. Uh, they buy distressed assets and, and they find ways to, to run the ad networks through their pipes. When when they got this, it was clear that there wasn't probably going to be a, a future investment case. So as we say around here, Peter, an era keeps ending. You know, th- this moment in time mm-hmm. that, that Ben was really a, a, a huge leader in that we thought was going to transform all of media. It turns out that, you know, it was just a little synapse, a blip. Yeah. I saw a one media writer call, you know, lamenting the end of Jezebel and he called it a storied brand. And like, I don't think any man on the street or woman on the street yeah. call it a storied brand. CBS News is a storied brand. <laughs> sure, exactly. Yeah, like Time Magazine or whatever. Like, they're not cool, but storied brand. But in the world of New York media, absolutely a storied brand. And I recommend like, you know, for the stuff that we talk about, I really, really did like Ben's book. And he has a very big section in there about specifically Jezebel and their first editor, Anna Holmes, who I think was hired in like 2005 um, and, and like didn't totally like see eye to eye all the time with Nick Denton, but Ben, and he wrote about this as an excerpt in the New York Times, you guys can Google it. He basically talked about how Jezebel was an incubator for the kind of identity politics we see coursing through a lot of yeah, commentary today on social media. Shit, we see it playing out right now in the <laughs> protests, uh, you know, on campuses uh, supporting the Palestinians. Like politics and identity was their driving force. They were willing to quote unquote call out big publishers like like big women's magazines. They wrote pretty frankly about gender, sex, identity, and they talked in the language that young women actually spoke in, and not the like you know Anna Wintour speak, mm-hmm. and that is worth remembering as as we think about like how some of the uh, conversation plays out today in terms of gender and 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 also like it gave writers a signal that you could get attention and currency by straying from rigid AP style in your writing if you were very loud you know that could be good for your career and we see today like how that's played out in terms of journalists and writers uh, getting attention on social media and yeah. becoming creators and all that stuff. No, I, I agree with you, and, and, I, and I don't want, want to sound like the nun at Catholic school here, but there's no question that it, it unleashed in, in many ways good into the world. It, it, it offered an opportunity for voices that, that would never have made it into what was in traditional media, and as you point out wisely, it absolutely was a bridge from traditional media to social media where many mm. underrepresented points of view, unpopular views, etc., could be presented w- you know, w- without any sort of moating around it. But mm-hmm. what also came out of this era, too, is, as I recall, it w- was a meanness as well. And when I think back on the Denton era, there was a lot of, for better or worse, I'm just being honest here, there was a traditional media had been a, apprenticeship style business and it was unfair in a lot of ways but you had to go through hoops to get to certain jobs and a yep. lot of the barriers to entry were just nipped by places like mm-hmm. Gawker and Jezebel and in some cases BuzzFeed too and a lot of power was given to very young people and and it was used wonderfully in many cases but there was also an occasional mean spiritedness that came out and and yep. one way that a lot of writers learned to differentiate was 
it, through being shrill, through being more critical, yep. and by not putting enough time into thinking about the people that they were being critical about. And uh, yep. I actually think that when you look back on this moment, it's not binary. It's actually kind of confusing. These companies did a lot to reshape the conversation in positive ways. You know, I mean, probably would have happened anyway, but but they let the genie out of the bottle and, and it can't come back. And I think part of the coarsening of the web, so to speak, and I, I now realize yep. I'm going into a, a bit of a sort of, you know, a dark mode here, but a lot of the coarsening came out through this. And I think one of the elements was giving young people with less life experience the chance to be you know, truly the uh, uh, large-scale opinion makers without knowing sometimes the consequences that went yep. with it. And, and, and obviously Gawker, Gawker rightly suffered the most. Whenever I hear somebody pine for the days of Gawker or say it should be, you know, recreated, which obviously Brian Goldberg tried to do in an ill-fated way, I just say to them, no, no, no. Like, th- that place committed sins of pure evil in many ways, and it was just, it was nasty, and, and, and we want to move away from that. I agree. And I gave the upside and you gave the appropriate downside and both can be true at the same time. John, go Tigers. Thanks for joining me. Go Tigers. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.